And then if you would grab your copy of Scripture, we're in Luke chapter 12. That's page 1199 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, the Gospel according to Luke chapter 12. We've been in a series uh, that we are wrapping up called Arise. We've been talking for uh, a few months about becoming the church God intended for us to be. And what we have done is we've looked at the church from the book of Acts and uh, specifically from Acts chapter 2. And we have noticed the, uh, the, the model that God sets forth in this first church in Acts 2. And we've seen the amazing uh, transformation, the unbelievable lives that these believers live together. And what we've done is we've taken apart each piece of that church. We've looked at their doctrine. We've looked at their gathering and their fellowship and their community and their leadership. We've looked at all the pieces of that. And now today we're going to look at the final piece of this first church. And we're going to, again, compare that with us today and then allow the Holy Spirit to challenge us as to uh, do we resemble that which we ought to. So let's begin this morning with a word of prayer. I do want to acknowledge before I pray that we do have our Indian missionary back with us this morning. Sister Renee is here, and I want to thank all of you for your faithfulness and prayerfulness for her. I know that this uh, body has been just... uh, Let me just say, heaven has been barraged on your behalf. And so we are grateful and look forward to hearing about... Uh, the amazing things that you experienced and saw and the way God used you in the nation of India while you were away. Let's go before the Lord and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, now will you set our hearts, God, like a flint towards this word. God, will you open up our ears, give us spiritual hearing that we might receive what you have to say to us this morning, Lord God. Father, we're your children. We want to be led by you. We want to submit our wills to yours. So God, speak to us today. Father God, help us. Give me preaching grace, I pray, Lord God, for your glory and for your name and your renown. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's just take a look at uh, this latter portion of Acts chapter 2 for a bit of memory. Uh, Just to remember kind of what we're looking at, Acts 2. These verses will come up beginning in verse 44. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and their goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their church daily those who were being saved. And really, what I would challenge you to do is when you read a passage of Scripture like this, when you're confronted by uh, this uh, reality in Scripture that oftentimes we would want to uh, back away from and say, well, that was then, that's not now, that was different. You know, we, we can't do that, we can't be that way. I just want to challenge you that when you ask the question, why? Why are these people acting and responding in the way that they are? Why are their priorities and, and their passions turned completely upside down. It's because they are living the life that acknowledges that the kingdom of God is here. In other words, when Jesus hit the scene in Mark chapter 1, 
The Bible says Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying the time is fulfilled, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that not only is the kingdom to come at hand, but the kingdom for now. Salvation is here, that things, we're in a new paradigm, that things, everything has changed. The, the shift has been uh, catastrophic and monumental. And so we cannot just revert back to life as usual. There is no life as usual for those who have been ushered into the kingdom. And so Jesus is going to begin to challenge us on this issue from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 12 as we go through this. And, and really, the issue at hand is the issue with regards to their, their stewardship of their resources. Notice this, uh, the freedom that exists in this first church that they, they sold their possessions and their goods and they divided them among all as anyone had need. Now, I'm sure that that puts a little fear in some of your hearts. Just the simple fact that I'm addressing this issue. Because you're afraid of what that might mean to you if that became true of you. But I want to assure you this morning that, that I believe that God will challenge us through this Word and He will uh, press us in His love to respond to Him the way that we ought to with regards to our priorities and with specific regard to our stewardship and our possessions. You see, the question really is this. Why do we have so much? Why has God given us, the vast majority of us in this room, why has God given us more than we need? Why? Because we know that God doesn't do anything for nothing. We also would acknowledge, I mean, if I said that every good and perfect gift comes from above, that God is the, is the, the, the author and finisher of our faith, but He's also the source of all that we have, we would all amen that and agree with that. But then when we push a little farther and say, well, if that's true, then why does this God who has control over all things, why has He chosen to give us more than we need? Why? And that's really the question that's at hand for us as a congregation. That there must be a reason because He he hasn't just been good to me and you because we deserved it. There must be a reason that He's been good to us in this way. And that's what Jesus is going to address with us today in Luke 12. So really, the issue at hand is, is greed. Is that, a, is that a frightful word? Is that a harsh word? Is that a scary word? Well, it ought to be because Jesus is going to give us some stern warnings about the word greed. And so I want us to look, beginning in verse 13, Luke chapter 12, I want us to see the consuming power of greed. Greed consumes us. When we allow greed into our lives, it takes over. Now I want you to notice what happens. Verse 13, Jesus is teaching this long dialogue that's going to stretch all the way through chapter 12 into chapter 13. And we're looking at, at, at this piece in here where there's these multitudes, tens of thousands of people around Jesus. And he says this, then as he's teaching, verse 13, one man from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, I want to just set the context for a minute here. We 
If we work through all, all of chapter 12 up to this point, here's what we would find out. Jesus has been teaching all these deep theological truths. Jesus is addressing uh, the, the, the treachery of hypocrisy. Jesus is teaching that we ought not fear men and what men can do, but we should only fear the one who commands and controls the soul. Jesus is teaching us that, that he cares for even the birds in the air and that we ought to take comfort and refuge in that. He teaches even on the danger of rejecting or blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So he's in the deep end of the pool in this teaching. And yet in the midst of that, this man blurts out, Hey, teacher, tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. Now, that seems kind of like a random interjection. In other words, where is this coming from? This isn't the topic of discussion. There's really no reason for this to spring up in verse 13 out of nowhere. Well, it illustrates what we all know to be true and what we've painfully had to see happen around us and for some of you in your very own family. And that's the consuming power of greed. And here's what I want you to see. This man represents another broken family. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom. He's teaching all these truths. And you know, this man hasn't heard anything Jesus is talking about. You know why? Because all he can think about is, is that there's some inheritance and it needs to be divided and he's consumed with getting his portion of the inheritance. He can't hear anything else. How many families have we seen just explode because they're fighting over who inherits what? That as soon as mom and dad are gone, all we can think about is what we're going to get out of the deal. And suddenly brothers no longer talk to brothers and sisters no longer talk to their, their, their sisters and so on and so forth it goes. And the whole family that was once together and united and would have a Sunday dinner together after church, now they don't even speak because of money. And so this man is so consumed that he just can't, he can't take anymore. He doesn't want to hear about anything else. He needs some clarification. He wants Jesus to react on his behalf because he needs this inheritance, he thinks. And you know what? This isn't a question. He's not asking. He's commanding Jesus to make some decision. He refers to him as teacher. That, that word is used to refer to a rabbi. And oftentimes rabbis would make these sort of decisions about family inheritance and circumstances such as that. And so he says, Rabbi, tell my brother what he ought to do. Verse 14, Jesus responds and said unto him, Man, I like that. Jesus like, Man, hey man, man, listen. Who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Now, that's an interesting response. Man, listen, your family uh, inheritance problems are not really your problem. Why are you trying to drag me into all this? Because it seems a little strange that Jesus would respond this way, considering in John chapter 5 that the Bible says that for the Father judges no one and has committed all judgment unto the Son. So... In actuality, Jesus really is the judge over all things, but here's the deal. Jesus is the judge over all things spiritual. This isn't His concern. This isn't what He came to do. He came to seek and to save that which is lost and to do the business that pertains to that. And this, these sort of petty issues, 
That's not what Jesus is here to get in the middle of. Now, certainly he has uh, wisdom to give. And Jesus is never without a response, as we'll see. But he tells the man that it is really not his place and that he is not going to respond in the nature and fashion to which the man wishes he would. So we see there's, there's this consuming uh, nature of greed. It takes us over. Greed is so, well, is so sinister that greed is one of the things that, that we never confess about ourselves. You know, I've pretty much heard it all. I've never had anyone come into my office, sit down and say, Pastor, you know what my problem is? I'm greedy. I mean, people will confess anything, but they won't confess that. You know why? Because no one ever thinks they're greedy. Because we always know someone who's more greedy than we are. And so we never, we don't, I mean, think about it. Have you ever just looked in the mirror and said, boy, I am greedy. It, it, it doesn't happen that way. It consumes us in such a sinister way. The second thing greed does is it lies to us. Now notice in verse 15. So Jesus said to them, he said, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now, this, this lie, I want you to underline in your Bible the word life in, the, in verse 15. That one's life does not consist. This is a, a unique word in the Greek for life. It's not the word. There's two words for life. One of them just pertains to, to life and death. Like there's life and there's not life. So call the, the funeral home. There's no life there. But then there's another word for life. And it's zoe, and that, li- that word, it means life as in John chapter 10. Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. And so we were alive. People were alive, obviously, when Jesus came. So he didn't mean life and death life in a physical way. He meant, a, he meant something different. In other words, whatever we had prior to Jesus was not life in this way. Are you with me? That there's more to life than just breathing and existing. And so what greed does is it lies to us and it tries to tell us that our stuff is going to make our lives better. That we can get this kind of life, this abundant life through the possession of things. And so clearly we, we need to understand that if Jesus came to give us abundant life, that there was something we didn't possess prior to Christ and something we do now possess in Christ that has changed the way we exist in life. And really, it, it means that we're, we're, not, we're not merely uh, preserving life, but Jesus is imparting life. That we in Him have new, rich, unfailing life in a brand new way. It's a new paradigm. It's a new existence. We, we were dead men walking, but now we live. That's the kind of life that Jesus is referring to here. That meaning and purpose, the things we long for, why are we here? What is the truth? All of those empty questions that are in our hearts are answered through life in Christ. And apart from Him, there is no other way to, to find a solution to those, those issues and those questions. And it certainly can't be found through stuff. So, the Bible says, 
all over the place. All over the place. Warning after warning after warning. Ecclesiastes 5, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. It's vanity. Now, certainly the writer of Ecclesiastes ought to know that. He was the richest man that ever lived. And yet he's, he, he's, he says it's just vanity. The Bible says in the book of Psalms that, that the Lord will, will show us the path of life and that in His presence is fullness of joy. Now that doesn't mean just in His presence in heaven. It means in His presence here that we can experience fullness of joy. And it's not going to come through things. It's going to come through a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. So, Jesus says, hey, take heed and beware. Those are harsh words. You know, you, you do some study this week. You look in the New Testament and you see how many times Jesus said, take heed and beware. And notice the things He says it about. It's not what you would expect. He says this about greed because He is acknowledging the fact that we have a strong tendency to reject any idea or any suggestion that we as a people may be greedy. You see, it's sinister. It lies to us. Remember a few weeks ago, we studied Revelation 3, verse 17, where the church at Laodicea, the Lord said to them, you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Hmm. But you do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And we, we recognize what a sobering thought it is that that a church can think they're fine, can literally believe that they're okay and don't need anything and be wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, that's the sinister nature of having too much and hoarding it to yourself. Because we saw that that was a very wealthy church that God had placed in a, in a, in a prominent location where they were able to trade and make lots of money. And what was their response? Oh, we're good. We have what we need. We're fine. And God said, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. So when He says, take heed, beware, He is drawing our attention to what He's about to address is a very serious danger. So greed consumes us. Greed lies to us. And thirdly, greed blinds us. It blinds us. So Jesus is going to respond. Obviously, He's going to say, you know what? I'm not, I'm not your arbitrator in this, but I'll tell you a parable. I got a story for you. I have a way of teaching you what you need to know, not what you ask. And so look in verse 16. So then He spoke a parable to them saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, Well, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? And he said, Well, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and I will build greater ones. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, what, is the, what, what does greed blind us to? And what is Jesus really illustrating here? Well... First of all, I want you to notice that in verses 16 through 18, or really in 17 and 18, it just you would, you would have to draw all over your Bible if you began to just circle everywhere that I existed or my. This man has a serious I, 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 my, my, my problem. 
he's still sort of in that terrible two stage of growth where he's, everything's mine. No one can touch it. I'm not going to share. And even though I don't even have a concept of work, earning, or appreciation of anything, it's all mine because I'm two and it's mine. And listen to him. This sounds like my kids when they were two. I'm not going to say it. He said, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? He, he goes on to say, I will do this. I will pull down my barns. I will build bigger ones. I will store my crops and my goods. It's all about him. And so the first thing that we're blinded to is, is the issue of ownership. See, we're blinded to the truth about ownership. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And here he is, my, 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 it's all my stuff. Deuteronomy 10 says, Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God. Also the earth with all that is in it. It's all the Lord's. He made it. He owns it. He's the king of it, the ruler over it. And this man is just saying, well, it's all my stuff. It's all mine. It's mine, and I'm going to do with it what I please because it's mine. Isn't it interesting that Jesus chooses to use a farmer for his parable? Isn't it interesting that he could have chosen anything? A couple of weeks ago, we, we talked about a, a, a pearl merchant. Jesus uses all sorts of different people in his parable. But here he used a farmer. wonder why that is. Because maybe we would be hard-pressed to think of any occupation where you really had less control over what happened. If there's anyone who would be utterly and completely ridiculously arrogant to think that they did it, it would be a farmer. I mean, the only thing a farmer can do, and I'm no expert, but I know enough to know this. The only thing a farmer can do is everything, just don't do anything wrong. But at the end of the day, you just got to trust the ground and the weather and all the things that you can't control to work. You can just do all the things you can do, but at the end of the day, you just got to stand back and watch it go. And either it will or it won't. And so here's a farmer who is reaping the bounty of what he has utterly no control over whatsoever and he takes full credit amazing you, you know what it's like when someone falsely just assumes ownership over something that they really have no right or claim over i mean there's few things that are really more annoying than that i mean you you know what i mean someone who just who just sort of takes over and, and takes charge and takes something for their self that, that really it doesn't belong to them. They have no right, no claim over it. You know what that is? That's presumption and arrogance. Presumption and arrogance. Notice what the Bible says in James chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and buy and sell. We'll make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life, James challenges? Is it not a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away? Instead, what you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, you shall live and you shall do this or do that. But now you boast in your arrogance and such boasting is evil. He goes on to say that therefore to him who knows to do good, but does not do it, to him it's sin. 
In other words, it is arrogant and presumptuous for any of us to lay claim to assume some ownership over something that it's not ours. It's the Lord's. And you know what? Just think of it in a familial situation. Just try to, just try to bring this truth home, if you will. Parents, your children, they, they begin to, to sort of take arrogant presumption over the things that you provide for them in an ungrateful way. And they begin to just lay hold of those things and to abuse those things and to take for granted those things. You know how that makes you feel? You know that sort of feeling down in your gut when you feel like you're serving and blessing and trying to honor and trying to, to build up and yet there's this presumption, this arrogance. We're His children. In other words, our Father owns the earth. If anyone ought to be grateful for what we have, if anyone ought to yield to the owner, it, I mean, we... Think about it. Some people could say, well, well, pastor, I don't know the owner. In other words, it's as if everything they have, they just sort of found. I can understand that. I can understand where they came to that conclusion. But what about us? We know him. He's our dad. We can't say that it was us, that we just found it, that it just happened, that we just got it. it that, that doesn't work for his children. You see, we know where we got it. We know who it belongs to. But do we acknowledge that? Do we, you see, greed, it lies to us about ownership. It also lies to us about the needs of others. I want you to pay close attention now to some truths about this parable. Because people get this mixed up sometimes. Jesus does not in any way say anything negative about being rich. He doesn't say anything about material prosperity at all. That's not the point of what he's saying. This man doesn't appear to have attained any of his wealth by doing anything wrong or immoral. And from everything we read, he's simply a hard-working, honest man who received the blessing of his toil. And Jesus doesn't have anything harsh or critical to say about being rich or about the gain of this man. And certainly, the Bible is filled with, with very wealthy servants of God. Abraham was extremely wealthy. Job was incredibly wealthy. King David was very, very wealthy, a man after God's own heart. In the New Testament, we see Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man. We see tax collectors like Zacchaeus and Matthew. There's a lot of wealthy people in the Bible. God's not condemning being wealthy. The problem's not the wealth. The issue is that the man's response to the blessing that he's been given is, I and my am going to go into leisure and ease and I'm going to eat and drink and be merry. That's the problem. The problem is, is that his response to the question of why have you been given more than you need is, I'm going to build bigger barns so that I can hoard it for myself. That's the problem. The problem's not the wealth or the gain. You see, 
God says that we're to defend the poor and the fatherless. That we're to do justice to the afflicted and the needy. That it's not about what you have, it's about what you and I do with what we have. That's the issue. The issue is always never about stuff. It's never about material. It's always about the heart. Always. It's not the stuff. It's what do you do with it? What is the, what is, because there in that is the revelation of our heart. Where's our heart? You see, I know. Believe me, I know. There are people in this room right now. And you have very, very little. And you are squeaking by day in and day out. And I know that. I know there's great finance. Now, it's not a lot, but there are people in this room who are really, really struggling. And as a family of faith, we've come beside you and we've walked with you and helped you. But here's the thing. That's okay. But... Even if that's you, listen closely to what I'm about to say. Luke 16, Jesus says, He was faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. In other words, wherever you are, be faithful in what you have. The issue is not what you have. The issue is what you do with what you have. The, one of the most frightful Statements that I hear from time to time is someone, normally they're not speaking directly to me, they're usually in my proximity and they'll make a statement about they're struggling and they're suffering and they'll say, well, you know, I'll just be so glad when I can afford to tithe. That is such an error. I mean, basically you just threw out the New Testament completely out the window. In other words, what exactly are you trusting in? The only hope that any of us have of getting through anything is the Lord. And to think that we would say, well, God, if you'll just bless my unfaithfulness so that one day I can be faithful, that's, you got the wrong God. That just won't work. Listen, the widow and two mites. And Jesus commends her for her giving. Pennies. My point is, it's not what you have. It's what you do with what you have is the issue. Greed will consume us. It will lie to us. It will blind us. And ultimately, it will destroy us. Look at verse 20. So God said to him, You fool, to this farmer, you fool. This night your soul will be required of you. And then those, and then whose will these things be that you have provided? In other words, he says, you are a fool. In the Bible, a fool is someone who, it's a very, very strong word. Referring to someone who in the face of eminent danger or destruction, refuses to acknowledge what is right before them. You see, a fool is not someone who is caught off guard. A fool is someone who has every opportunity to know what they ought to do, but refuses to do it and then perishes for it. That's a fool. Jesus says this man is a fool. He should have known. He had every opportunity to see, but he didn't. And 
Because of greed, he's ultimately destroyed. Why? Well, because he, he forgot God in the equation. He, he left God out. All he saw was me and my. He didn't, he didn't acknowledge that, that God was part of this equation. He, he forgot about others. He forgot about the people around him. He never thought, well, is there anyone around me in need? Is there anything else I might be able to do with some of my extra, some of my excess? No, he didn't do that. He forgot others, but he forgot his own mortality. He forgot who was holding his life. See, Jesus had just explained that we're not to fear men because men can only hurt the body. That if you belong to Christ, you're going to live forever. And so no one can hurt you physically. You are an eternal being. You will live forever with Him. They can't hurt you. He said the only one to fear is the one who can hurt the body and the soul. He said we have nothing to fear as God's children. But this man forgot that. See, he forgot that there was more than just the physical. That his life was was hanging in the balance by something he didn't have control over. You see, he forgot that really his breathing in and breathing out were not really dependent upon his lungs as much as the one who makes the lungs work. It's not, it's not dependent upon the heart beating as much as it is the one who designed and created and knit that heart together and continually allows it to do that. That's the one. That, that God is in control. So again, the Bible would warn us. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The Bible says, Then I hated all my labor, in which I had toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. In other words, at the end of my life, after all that I've done, what should have been a blessing becomes a curse. You know why? Because now I realize that I don't have control. I, I, don't, I don't have control over my life. I am not the one who is the sustainer of life. And my mortality is something I don't have control over. We don't know when that moment will come. And so what, what should have been a blessing, this, this material provision, it winds up being a curse. Then I hated my labor. I hated it, he says. Verse 21. Jesus says, so is, it, so is he who lays up treasure for himself. You see, he's not rich towards God. The Bible says, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world, but he lost his own soul? In other words, he, he lays up treasure for himself. And to do that means by definition that you're not rich towards God. Because that's not God's priority. That's not what God deems life in the kingdom. That's not the, the proper response of His children in light of all that He's done on their behalf. That's not the reason the Heavenly Father gives His children more than they need. He gives them more than they need that they might be rich towards Him. But when He gives more than they need and they spurn His blessing and they reject His command and say, no, well, I'm not interested. You see... Again, the sin here is not the accumulation of resources. That's not the sin. That is not the sin. God is the giver. He's not giving sin. He's, he's saying, listen, it's when you accumulate all this and you take it for yourself. 
That's the sin. Praise God that there are our brothers and sisters in Christ who have been greatly gifted to do lots of amazing things and to earn great wealth for the kingdom of God. Isn't that a blessing and an encouragement? Yes. And praise God for it. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. And the, because the idea here is that somehow we want to bring, we want to bring kingdom priorities sort of into our worldview. And that's going to totally mess you up because it will not work. This isn't, this isn't the distribution of wealth. That's not what this is. This isn't the, the, the scorn of, of being uh, wealthy or productive or prosperous. It's not that at all. It's being greedy. That's what it is. That's what Jesus is dealing with here. And so, you know, I encourage young people all the time. I say, grow up. And follow your passion and do great things for God. And whatever passion you have in your heart, do it with everything that you can. And make the greatest difference in the world for God. And they'll say things to me like, but, you know, what if I want to be a doctor? Or what if I want to be, you know, a real estate developer? Or what if I, I mean, how can I use that for God? And I'm going, easy, make tons of money. And then send people all over the world to share the gospel. Praise the Lord. I mean, do that. Do whatever you do for the glory of God. God calls us to do different things. Thank God that we're not all the same. You know, this just really came home to me this past Christmas. I, I really think that this was probably the best Christmas I've ever had. And you know... Certainly wasn't because of what I received. I'm not sure I got a single gift other than, you know, I mean, I, I got some, some great uh, fudge and candy and wonderful things and things of that nature. But it's, it had nothing to do with that. And really, as I think about this Christmas, I think about how, you know, most people by now, the, the luster of what you got for Christmas is already kind of fading and tarnishing. And, you know, you're stuck paying the credit card bill on it and you know remorsefully figuring out what were you thinking in the moment of that purchase or whatever the case may be but some people in this congregation they chose to do things a little differently they sent their treasure ahead their their treasure is their their christmas is waiting for them in another place in matthew chapter 6 Jesus says it this way. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. And there thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so I spent the days leading up to Christmas going from house to house. And I had the, the privilege, really, of, of bringing... Christmas gifts to people in our congregation who would otherwise be unable to have Christmas. And it was wonderful. But it was only wonderful for me. Who it was really wonderful for were the people who weren't there. The people who bought all that stuff. The people who said, you know, rather than celebrate Christmas about us, we're going to be rich for the kingdom. And so they sent their 
treasure ahead. And they stored it up in heaven rather than on earth. And I can assure you that even today, their Christmas is not tarnished one bit. And they'll never look back at this past Christmas season and think, you know, boy, we really, we really, we really overspent. We really did more than we should have. Mm-mm. You see, because they, they gave their Christmas for others who couldn't have. I was just the delivery man. I tell you, it was such a blessing, such an encouragement that every time a need came up, my phone would ring. I'd get an email from a family in this church and they'd say, who's in need? We, we'd like to give. And to my knowledge, every single family was taken care for. And I thought, Lord, it's kind of like Acts chapter 2. Why can't it be like this all year? You know, if you were, if you were put in an apartment in a foreign country, let's say you were put in an apartment in France for a year, and you could live in this apartment and you could live and, and enjoy the culture and all the sights and all the things that France had to offer. And the only requirement was, was that you would, when your year was up and you returned back home to the United States, you would not be able to take anything with you other than the clothes you were wearing. Now, if that were the case, how much money or effort or time would you spend decorating this apartment, making sure that it had lavish furniture and beautiful pictures hanging on the wall and all the comforts of home? Probably zero. Because you would know that it wouldn't make any sense to invest all your time in something that you'd have to leave in such a short amount of time. Sound familiar? This isn't our home. We're just here for a short time. Why would we spend all our money on trinkets to decorate this, this life when we're going to spend eternity in the life to come? Shouldn't we invest our treasure in eternity? Shouldn't we push forward and get beyond this world and this life? If you notice in the very beginning of Luke 12... It's interesting that the Bible says that in the meantime, there was an innumerable multitude of people that had gathered around Jesus. The Bible says that they trampled one another, that, that they, were, they were trampling. But then the very next phrase says, He began to say to His disciples. In other words... There's tens of thousands of people thronging around Jesus. I mean, He is getting mauled. But in the midst of all the chaos and all the people, He doesn't speak to the multitude about this issue. He speaks to the disciples. Not to the twelve, but to the people in the crowd that included the twelve. The people in the crowd who were His disciples, who were learners, who were listening, who were... Why? Because Jesus isn't teaching people who aren't in His family how to manage the resources of the Father. He's teaching His people, 
He's teaching those who would be His. Because they're the ones, the only ones, who would ever be able to get this right and understand this. You see, maybe you're here this morning and you think, I've totally lost my mind. Well, you're probably not His son or daughter. Because that's exactly what I would think if I weren't. But if that's my Father, if I understand who He is, this makes perfect sense to me. I completely understand that what we do with our resources illustrates who we belong to. It really does. That really our checkbooks and bank statements, credit card debt, at the end of the day, it all illustrates where our heart is. And so I just want to challenge you as, as a family, together, all of us. You know, I guess the good news for you is that I can't come in here and speak to you about something God hasn't ripped my heart to pieces over all week long. It's a hard text. It's a painful truth. But I need to hear it. And you know what? Yesterday I was in my kitchen and I looked down on the, the bar there and there was a, uh, the, the, the paperwork for my, uh, my retirement. And uh, I don't, you know, I mean, I'm just not the kind of person who pays attention to that kind of junk. I'm just really not. But I picked it up and I looked at it and I thought, is that all I got? Man, it's going to be rough. I said, honey, you better start working on ramen noodles because we're headed that way. Man, the economy has just killed it. And you know what I realized? I'm looking down at that number and I'm thinking, I should have gave more of that away. See, the economy stole what should have never been stolen. I should have gave it away. If I'd have gave more of it away, it'd be in heaven right now. I could look down and go, is that all I got? Great, there must be tons of it in heaven. Where I'll be forever. So many times we just see through the lens of this world. So you know what? I like ramen noodles. They're pretty good. You can put some different things in it and dress it up and make it a meal. I've been thinking about it. I'm walking through the store looking at the different flavors. Planning for retirement. So, folks, we can't just say we're a family. We got to be a family. We got to be a family. And we want to be an obedient. We want to be good children. We want to be wise with what God's given us. And I'm just going to tell you the reason God's given us more than we need is real simple. It's not because we deserve it, it's not because we earned it. So we could give it away. That's why He gave it to us. 
So let's be rich towards God. Because we want to be the church that God intended for us to be. Let's stand, bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, we come before you. And Lord God, we thank you for, uh, we thank you for your fatherly word to us today as your children. And Lord God, we receive it. And Father, we, we just want to stop and acknowledge right now, God, look at all that you've done. God, you, you've done all this. You, you have, have built this place. You have, have put each of us here as you've seen fit. Lord God, you've, you've built a family where there used to be none. Lord God, we're a group of people who once were orphans and now have been adopted into the kingdom. And Lord God, will you please help us, God? I know you've already done everything we need. You've already given your son that we might have life and life more abundantly. But Lord God, we just confess today that there's there's a part of us, a sinister part of us that wants to live in the old kingdom. And God, will you just kill that in us, please? Father God, we we want to acknowledge you, Lord, and what you've done. We want to be rich towards you, Lord God. Thank you, Father. Thank you for what you have accomplished here. I, I just praise you for the families in this room who have just modeled this truth in such grace and such wonderful ways. And Lord God, thank you that it's it's the people in this room that no one would ever, ever suspect or know that are just so amazingly generous with what they have. Father, thank you for blessing all of us and allowing us to be a part of this family, God. And we want to move forward together. All of us. God, we want to, we want to give of the abundance you've given us for everyone who has need, Lord God especially need of you. We want to be about the gospel, Lord God. We want to be about, Father God, bringing the truth of the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. There's no greater message in all the world than that. So Lord God, will you just, will you astonish and astound us by what a little church on a country road can do in a great big world? with a great big God behind them. Father, thank you. And we just love you and praise you. And right now in this moment, Lord, I just lift up every need in this room. If there's anyone here who needs to receive you as Savior and Lord today, Father, may it be the day of their salvation. Lord God, just give them the courage to come. Come. Today's the day to join this church and unite yourself in this family. Father, today might be the day to come and kneel before you and, and just repent or ask for strength or comfort or encouragement or whatever the case may be. Help us, Lord God, to respond, not to fear men, but Lord God, only to fear the one who controls the body and the soul. We love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name.